0: Patriarchs in scripture, of course, when I say patriarchs, I'm mentioning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are important for your study and for your mind because they are not just men. They are not just fathers of the Jewish nation. They are also models. In other words, God said, if you want to know what I'm like, if you want to know my character, if you want to know how I'll deal with people, Look at the model of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham serves as the model of faith, the man of faith, the model of faith. Isaac serves as the model of faithfulness. Isaac was so faithful that he was willing and obedient to lay down on the altar of sacrifice when his father led him up the mountain. And even though the angel stopped Abraham's hand, Isaac's faithfulness was still proven by his willingness. He's a model of faithfulness. And then Jacob is the model of God's grace. If you ever needed proof that God is a gracious God, all you need to do is study the life of Jacob. Jacob, the Bible says, when, and it doesn't mean this in our American language, but In the Hebrew language, the name Jacob meant supplanter, uh, trickster, usurper. And the reason he got that name is while he was still in his mother's womb, he and his twin brother Esau were struggling in the womb, almost as if they were instinctively fighting for who was going to come out first and get the birthright. So Jacob, before his mind is developed enough to even form strategy and have a will, it's almost as though he's instinctively, without realizing it, fighting for position, for recognition, and for his place in the world. Esau ends up coming out first. He's the first twin born. And when Esau comes out, there's a hand around his heel, Jacob's hand holding the heel and his mama got tickled at it and she said oh you little usurper you little trickster you were trying to keep your brother from coming out first you were after the birthright i'm going to name you jacob and and so jacob was was bent from his mother's womb. Have you ever known people that have just always been bent towards dysfunction? They've always been bent towards bad behavior. They've always been bent. The scripture says that even a child is known by his doings. And there's some people they've been struggling since their mother's womb with the issues that they have and the weaknesses that they have. And Jacob would go on to live up to his name. He was always dealing with an inferiority complex because of his birth order. He was always feeling like he was less than and not enough. So he used deceit, trickery, and cunning to try to steal his way to the top. And you know you're a con man when you put on goat's hair and you put, on, you put on hair from animals around your neck and go in and lie to your dying daddy, telling your dying daddy that you are your brother so that your daddy will bless you and give you the birthright. Some people are just bent, been bent all of their life. Jacob tricked his uncle Laban out of his livestock. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver and a trickster. And then one day, met God. God wrestled with him, knocked his hip out of joint. God began to show him that his character flaws were going to pollute his destiny if he didn't make a change. And so God says, I'm going to initiate the change in you. I'm even going to change your name. And he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob meaning supplanter trickster Israel meaning a prince with God and that is why the name change that is why it is stunning to me that after the name change when God introduces himself to other people God continues to say I am the God of Abraham Isaac and not Israel. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac. And he pulls out that former name, that poor character. This is a picture of grace that that I understand God would attach his name to Abraham, the man of faith. I understand God would attach his name to Isaac, the man of faithfulness. But just when you start to think that God's only for the good people and he'll only walk with the perfect people and he'll only walk with the mature people who have cleaned up all their habits and changed all their ways. God also throws Jacob in there on his name to let wicked people know he'll be their God too. To let liars know he'll be their God too. To let unfaithful people know he'll be their God too. That that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, but he's also the God of, of Jacob. Jacob was blessed in spite of. And there's a few people in the room that know what it's like to have poor character and yet be blessed in spite of. There's a few people that know what it's like to lie when the truth would fit better and one day have to face all of the repercussions and consequences for the bad decisions you made. Have you ever been shocked by what God got you out of? Have you ever been shocked at when God blessed you? Have you ever been amazed at how much you didn't deserve the kindness, the mercy, the love, the temptation, and the favor of God. Jacob was blessed in spite of. And and in our text now, the aging Jacob is bearing the scars of his losses. He had lost Rachel, the love of his life. She died giving birth to his youngest son, Benjamin. And then he had lost Joseph, at least so he thought. You remember Joseph's brothers hated him and they stripped him of his coat of many colors, threw him into slavery, sold him into slavery, and then dipped his coat in animals' blood and went back and said, Daddy, I guess a wild animal ate up Joseph. And now the old man, in his, in his latter years, he's, he's dealing with the scars of his losses. You know, it's impossible to get a little older without collecting some losses. It's impossible to celebrate too many birthdays before you start collecting losses and the scars that go along with them. And so in our text, Genesis 42, Jacob, he's trying to keep what's left of his family together. He's trying to make them huddle. He's trying to keep them together. He's trying to keep them strong. Every family usually has at least one person. that that tries to huddle the family and tries to keep everybody together. I remember my grandmother, she was the one, she she would always try to keep everybody together. Even if everybody was mad and fighting, she would come in and be the peacekeeper and try to keep everybody together. And that's what Jacob's doing. He's trying to just keep his family, he's trying to keep his family together. It's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure trying to keep your family together. Can't family drive you crazy sometimes? And he's trying to keep them together, but a famine comes that threatens the family. In verses 1 and 2, the scripture says, When Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And I want to draw your attention really quickly to the idea and to the thought. This family was facing a famine of food, but as I was reading it, the Holy Spirit began to highlight to me that life is full of different kinds of famines. And there are famines all over this room this morning. You may not be in a famine for food. You may be in a famine for love. You may be in a famine for companionship. You may be in a famine for finances. You may be in a famine for opportunity. But everybody in here, you may not be able to see it because everybody looks so nice today. But everybody in here somewhere in their life is dealing with some kind of famine, some kind of need, some kind of lack. And so point number one, the famine demands a response. Say that with me. The famine demands a response. And so Jacob gets up and says, you're not going to defeat the famine looking at each other. I love that, if you, if you have the text on your phone or you have your Bible with you, just look at that. He says, why are you sitting around looking at each other? There are some problems that cannot be answered in the circle you're standing in. There are some strategies that have to come outside of your normal zone and the places you normally occupy. He says, you need to take action and you need to go to Egypt. We've thought about this, strategized, Prayed, praised, done all the spiritual things we can do. This famine still hasn't broken. So if we don't take action and do something, this thing's going to kill us because of our lack of action. I want to say by the spirit of the Lord to somebody today, action is required. And I knew that wouldn't go over big because people of faith, people that come to church, people that learn about the miracles of God have a hard time understanding that human requirement has a place in the miracles of God, that God's power does not absolve you of human responsibility. I'm going to say it again because I like it god's power does not absolve you of human responsibility you know you can sit there and say lord i'm believing you're going to pay this mortgage and you sitting on the couch eating chips watching tv Lord, I believe you're going to pay this mortgage. That's never going to happen. Because there is a role of human responsibility in the miracles of God. And Jacob looks at his boys and says, What are you doing staring at each other expecting the famine to just disappear automatically if you want to beat the famine you have got to take some action I don't know who you are in the room the time to keep praying about it is over the time to keep thinking about it is over the time to keep getting counsel and advice about it is over it is time to take action somebody holler action somebody holler again action so Jacob tells them it's now or never it's life or death You need to go to Egypt. I also see in verse number two, that something interesting about God, and I searched it out through the scriptures, every one I could find concerning famine. In every famine in scripture, everybody say every. In every famine in scripture, every famine in scripture, God will always send two things. He will either send provision to break it or he will send instruction. And in Jacob's case, God is sending an instruction because the Bible said Jacob told his boys, I heard there was grain in Egypt. So we may not have what we need right here, but I did receive an instruction on where we can get it. If God won't give it to you, he'll at least tell you and show you where you can go get it. That's good. Verse 2 also says something about this family's character. It says something about these people. It, verse, verse 2 says Jacob gave, he gave, Jacob gave them money and told them to go buy the grain. He doesn't tell them to go beg. He doesn't tell them to go beg. He tells them to go buy. You know what this means? It means the faithfulness of God will ensure that no famine takes everything from you think about it think about it they don't have food but they do have money Uh, God didn't let the famine take everything and I want to stop right there and thank God that even through the trials that I've been through he never let a problem take everything even through the mourning and the losses and the difficulties, even through the pain, even through the struggle, He never let any one situation take everything. And I realized, even in my trials, I've always got a reason to praise because God always left me with something. And you may be going through a hard time this morning, but you have a reason to praise because if you look around, in spite of your challenges and your trials, I bet you you'll find that God left something in your hand thank you Lord for what you did give me he said let's take he said I I know what we don't have but let's take what we do have and use what we do have against what we against what we don't have and he said go down to Egypt and then finally the text ultimately reveals that sometimes God uses famine as a tool for his purpose I believe you ought to pray against every famine that comes. But if praying don't break it. I believe you ought to praise God in the face of every famine that comes. But if praising doesn't break it. I believe you ought to plead the blood of Jesus and quote the scripture against every famine that comes. But if pleading the blood and quoting the scripture won't break it. Then it's possible that God is using the famine as a tool in his own hand. Because if you read the story of the family, you will find out their destiny was not in Canaan. Their destiny was to end up in Egypt. But they never would have gone to Egypt if not for a famine that pushed them out. Sometimes God will use the uncomfortable problems and situations in your life to reposition you to a place where he's destined you to be. When you won't listen to the prophet and you won't read the word and you won't listen to the preacher. Sometimes God will send the gift of a famine to pull you into the right place to ensure you do not miss your appointed destiny and the the famine pushed them to where they belong to be but then as we read the text further we realize not only does this family have a a famine for grain there's another famine in the text there's a famine in the family it's a famine in the family I wonder how many families in this room are experiencing a famine. In the family dynamic you really won't see it in the text unless you can put it in context with the whole rest of their story but the Bible says in verse 3 then 10 of Joseph's brothers not all of them just just 10 it was more and more 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt but Jacob did not send Benjamin Joseph's brothers with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him if you're having a problem understanding this let me give you this graph Jacob had a total of 12 sons six of them he had with Leah you remember Leah Uncle Laban had been conned one too many times by Jacob, and he said, I'm going to get you back on this one. So Jacob had promised to work seven years to marry Rachel. Rachel was the love of his life. Rachel was the one he wanted. And so uh, Laban gets him liquored up at the wedding (laughs) and takes Rachel, moves her out, takes Leah, his older daughter, who was far less attractive, the scripture says, And he puts Leah in her place. Jacob don't know the difference till the next morning. I'll let you work that out in your mind. (laughs) And he comes into Laban and he says, what's what's going on here? This, This ain't right. You've defrauded me. Laban said one thing that crushed Jacob and shut him up. Laban said, oh, in this country, it's not the custom to prefer the younger over the older. Now, if you know something about Jacob's story, Jacob had Jacob the younger had stolen the birthright from Esau the older. So Laban was saying, everybody knows what you did. And this is to get you back. So Jacob was in essence stuck with Leah. He finally gets to marry Rachel, the one he loved. The Bible says when he saw her, he let out a yell and ran over and kissed her. You know you find if if when he meets you for the first time, he starts hollering and just runs over and grabs you and kisses. That probably wouldn't work well today. (laughs) Different time, but she's the love of his life. Problem is... He thinks, he thinks he got it fixed, you know. Well, I'll just spend my time, I'll just spend my time with Rachel now that I got her. Problem was Rachel was barren, she couldn't have kids. So he uses Leah to have kids, but he's casting all of his love on Rachel. So here's the thing Jacob and Leah have six sons. You watching my graph? Jacob and Leah's concubine and Rachel's concubine, they have a total of four sons. We'll talk about concubines next Sunday if you want to. <laughs> give you a full explanation. And then finally, later in life, the Bible says that God opened Rachel's womb, but she was only able to give him two first Joseph and then Benjamin. So I want to get to the reason of why Jacob won't let Benjamin go with the other 10 brothers. It's because these other 10 boys grew up watching how much their father loved Joseph. And they internalized it. They had a father fracture because they could look in their father's eyes and see that he didn't feel about them the way he felt about Joseph. But see, they misunderstood the dynamic. It wasn't that Joseph was so special. It was that Joseph was the love child he had with the woman he loved, Rachel. It wasn't that Joseph was just so much better than them. It's that when Jacob looked at Joseph, he said, you look like your mama, boy got your mama's nose and it just made it wash all over him again how much he loved Rachel and all of the other ten boys they watched how Jacob didn't really love their mama and he certainly didn't think as much of them as he did of Joseph and you know the story they caught Joseph one day out in the field and they stripped him of his coat of many colors, threw him down in a pit. A band of Midianites came by. They sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver and dipped his coat in blood and went back and told his daddy, your golden boy must have got eaten by a wild animal. Now, it's been years since this took place. And the boys made up a, a passable cover story but there's still something in the old man that doesn't quite trust the other 10 sons. The last time I let you go in the field with one of Rachel's kids, he didn't come back except a bloody coat and a sad sob story. If you think I'm gonna let you take Benjamin, So the the family culture is broken because he loves his sons. He does. But he doesn't trust them. Have you ever loved somebody that you didn't really? Y'all ain't saying nothing to me this morning, Jesus. Have you ever had family members that, that you know you love them, but you gotta watch them? You love them, but you know you can't loan them money because there's been five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 20, 25 times that experience has taught you they may be blood, but you can't trust them. And so Jacob's dealing with the bitterness of Joseph's death that he suspects is the result of these 10 sons and their hatred and jealousy. The 10 sons have a father fracture. They've never really been as close with their father as they wanted to be. And the whole culture of the family is broken. Family cultures can get broken by so many things. Sometimes somebody dies and it just changes the whole trajectory of the culture of the family sometimes somebody makes a bad decision sometimes family members hurt each other and it just changes the trajectory of the culture of the family and this is what Jacob is dealing with and he says you think you're going to take you think you're going to take Benjamin And you know why he's holding him so tight? In the text, I want you to see in your mind when they all come and they say, Daddy, we're ready to leave. We all got to go. Everybody's got to do their own part. We got to travel. It's going to be a hard journey. We've got to travel in the middle of a famine. Traveling anytime is difficult work. But traveling in the middle of a famine is extra difficult. And they've (laughs) got to go get grain for Benjamin. They want Benjamin to be there to pull his own weight. And Jacob is clutching him. He's holding on to him saying, Nope. He ain't taking this one he's holding on he's grasping onto him saying nope, you ain't taking this one why is he like this? Because Jacob is under the impression that Joseph is dead He feels that Benjamin is his last his last sniff of Rachel his last reminder of a time in his life that he loved. That he no longer has now. Really in Jacob's heart. He believes. That his best days are behind him. And that there's only bitter days in front of him. So he's trying to hold on to one last relic of a better time. I wonder what you're holding on to more tightly than you should because you have more confidence that your past was better than that your future will be better. People get possessive when they think they're down to their last. Some of you were in a relationship. You never would have stood for the stuff that's going on in that relationship, but you're holding on to it. Because you think you're down to your, to your last. Some of you are putting up with things on the job. You, five years ago, you never would have put up with that. But you started to believe this lie that this is your last opportunity, that this is your last chance. And when people get down to their last, they start clutching desperately. I want you to see, Jacob is holding Benjamin not out of love. He's holding him out of fear. What are you holding on to more tightly than you should? Because you're afraid it's the last one you're going to get. Do you realize that when you're afraid, something you're holding is the last thing you're ever gonna get that you are making that thing an idol and making it bigger than God you have more fear over losing that than you do missing an opportunity from God and you don't realize that in God it's always progressive he leads us from faith to faith from strength to strength from victory to victory you are never down to your last when all you've got left is God when all you've got left is God all you've got left is nothing but opportunity nothing but potential and power and so and the sad the sad thing is he's holding this boy back this boy is full grown now but he's holding him back he's holding him back because see if you can catch this he's holding him back because he's grieving still from a tragedy that never even happened point number three the fallacy there's fallacy in the text and the fallacy demands revelation Jacob is living under the fallacy that he's lost his best days he's living under the fallacy that he has lost his son but that's not the only fallacy in the text Verse six through eight says, now Joseph was the governor of the land and the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, spoke harshly to him. Where do you come from? They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Watch this. Joseph uses a fallacy. To cause his brothers to reveal details about the family because he's curious. The brothers are in a famine for grain. Joseph is the Lord of all of the grain in Egypt. But Joseph is he's in a famine for his family. He's got what they need, but they don't even realize that they are what he needs. And slowly the text begins to morph into a prophetic Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ, because when Joseph, when Joseph sees them, Instead, he could have instantly stood up and ordered their heads to be chopped off. He could have remembered what they did to him. He could have remembered how they hurt him. He could have remembered what happened. But instead, he sees them and he's curious about the family. He sees them and he misses them. He sees them and then he finds out he's got another brother from the same mother, Benjamin. Benjamin. And he starts getting all the information. He's creating a fallacy, pretending like he doesn't recognize him, pretending like he's mad at him. He's creating a fallacy just so they'll give him all the details of the family. And all of a sudden you see in the text, when he sees them, even though they're guilty, even though they threw him in a pit, even though they sold him as a slave, when he sees them, he's not mad at them. He loves them. Showing us a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, 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 if you study your Bible at all, you know that God used Joseph as an Old Testament shadow and type of Jesus. Here's just a few similarities. Both Joseph and Jesus were the beloved son of their father, the favorite son. Both Joseph and Jesus were rejected by their brothers. Both Joseph and Jesus were stripped of a valuable coat. Joseph's coat of many colors was stripped off of him in the field. Jesus' valuable garment was stripped off of him at the foot of the cross. And you know it was valuable because non-believing Roman soldiers gambled for it while he was hanging there being crucified. Both Joseph and Jesus were sold out for silver. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Both Joseph and Jesus were falsely accused. Joseph by Potiphar's wife, Jesus by the chief priests and the scribes. Both were given the keys of authority in underground prisons. Joseph was made Lord of the prison under Pharaoh's palace. Jesus was made Lord over death, hell, and the grave when he descended into the lower parts of the earth and took the keys of all authority. And then both Joseph and Jesus were raised up to sit at the right hand of the highest power, Jesus in heaven and and Pharaoh on earth. Look at Jesus in the story of Joseph we're leaving we're going outside look at Jesus for just a minute the ones who hurt him and sinned against Joseph are now standing in front of him the ones who have sinned against Jesus will one day stand in front of him The brothers deserve judgment and wrath, but instead, he loves them and forgives them. Those of us who are sinners, Romans says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We deserve wrath and judgment for our evil deeds and our disobedience to the commandments of God. And yet, if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, accept him into our heart, believe on him and call on his name. Though we are sinners when we stand before Jesus, though we deserve wrath, he loves us and forgives us. But the similarities don't stop there. It would have been enough if you wanted a case study on mercy, it would have been enough for Joseph to look at him, not hurt him, not kill him, and just forgive him. If it stopped there, we would all say, oh, my God, that's amazing. That has to to have God in it. But that's not where it stops. Not only is he not angry with them, not only does he not hurt them, he decides to fill all of their bags with grain. He breaks their famine. That's shout worthy, right? You save me. You forgave me, you loved me, and you blessed me and filled my bag. What a mighty God wizard. But then after filling their bag, and see all of you have that same story. God could have been mad at you, but he forgave you. He loved you, he saved you, and people all over this room know you've been blessed by God and he's filled up your bag. But but then, Joseph calls over one of his attendants. He says, I want you to slip in there where all of their bags are. And I want you to put all of the silver they spent on that grain back in their bags and keep it a secret. Most people think that blessings are transactional because most relationships we have in this world are transactional. You do for me if I do for you. And so sometimes we take that paradigm with us when we try to approach God in this text, God is proving through Joseph that he's not a transactional God. In this text, God is proving that he will bless you and then take what you spend. You got to understand, it was a blessing for them to go and be able to buy grain. The grain was the blessing. But when he goes in and he puts the extra silver in their bag, this was exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or even think. This was a blessing that was so beyond belief. And I'm closing. I'm closing. But when they discovered it on the way home, they went into their bag to get some grain for the donkey. When they discovered it, they got scared. blessed them so good he scared them. Everybody won't know what this is like. Have you ever had a blessing so big it scared you? (laughs) Hallelujah. Oh, has God ever been so good to you that when you got it in your hand, you couldn't rejoice. You just got on the floor and cried? You ever got a blessing that you thought, this is too big for me. I don't even know what to do with it. I don't even know why you would do de- What's going on? You ever got a, a, a blessing that made you nervous? They opened the bag. My silver's in this bag. The next brother, op- oh my God, my silver's here too. Next brother, oh my- He gave them 10 times. A secret blessing a blessing they weren't expecting a blessing they weren't counting on a blessing they didn't ask for a blessing they didn't pray for this was a a secret blessing motivated by love and I came to tell somebody watch your life the rest of this year God sent me here to tell you secret blessings are coming to your bag. Watch your bag close. Watch your bag close. Because a God who's not mad at you, a God who has forgiven you, a God who has loved you in spite of what you've done also also wants to bless you he's not just the forgiver of your souls he's not just the great dealer of mercy from heaven he is also a blesser and a secret blessing i prophesy over your life in the name of jesus christ from the floor to the balcony online and beyond i prophesy secret blessings coming upon your life everybody say secret blessings in the name of jesus stand on your feet give the lord a praise all over the house this morning say it one time. He loves us Oh how So we are His portion and He is our prize drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes if grace is an ocean we're all sinking lift up your hands just for a moment so heaven This is me. I pray for every person in the room dealing with any kind of famine, any kind of famine, any kind of need, any kind of lack. And I ask you, Lord, to speak to their hearts and to touch them. It's amazing how you can have all the strength in the world, but not have relationship with family. Or it's amazing how you can have all of the money in the world, but not have a connection and a strength in other relationships. It's amazing how you can be so healthy and yet so broke, or how you can be so rich and so unhealthy. It's amazing the different famines and the different areas that famine visits in our life, but God, you are the God who either sends provision or who sends instruction. And i pray that both of those would fall like rain in this place today even outside today that you would rain down provision and instruction in the name of jesus thank you for being a god who restores families family restoration is your masterpiece every one of us have family members that we're worried about family members that we're concerned about every one of us have those things lord family restoration is your masterpiece and lord Thank you for bringing revelation to all the fallacies that we've believed, all the lies that we believed. Like Jacob going years thinking his son was dead, it was a fallacy and the devil is a liar. Thank you for giving revelation and breaking the lies in the name of Jesus Christ. Give him one more praise all over the house. All right, we're going to go outside. Would you would you do me a favor? I, I challenge some of our I challenge some of our, our faithful people early, early this morning to sow into this building and to plant a seed toward the the forming of the ground and the foundation and those kind of things. And if you're in this place and, and this ministry has blessed you, if you're in this place and this ministry is a place where God speaks to you in a place where you feel connected I want to challenge us as a church today to bless the Lord and bless the kingdom of God with a significant offering toward this building project this is going to be done without a bank it's going to be done debt free and it's going to be done because of moments like this where incredible people like you make a, a decision with your finances. I'd like to ask as many people as, as would and to have a willing heart if you could give $100 today toward this vision, it would be such a blessing, or as close as you can get to it. But this moment we stand on is so significant and it will not happen without you, without people like you. And so, As we give to you, Lord, as we sow into building this building where children can be taught the things of God, where the church can expand, where we can be a blessing to the community, I pray you would touch the hearts of the people today. Let them understand that they're giving to you and you are a debtor to no man, that you are a God who blesses us and rains on us but you are also a God that gives secret blessings that we weren't even expecting. In Jesus' name, if you need an envelope, there's one in the back.